Andrew Womack Ministries presents part two of the Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword series, a three-part album. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. I'm continuing to share what I've called Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword. It's a book that I have. I also have study guide, CDs, DVDs. We also have this in Spanish. This is a Spanish book, which I won't even try and pronounce, but uh, this is a teaching where I've taken 16 of the foundational things that God has shown me and I've combined them into one book. It's just a brief synopsis of these 16 different topics. And what I'm doing is each day I am covering in one day's teaching something that normally I could spend four weeks or six weeks on here on the television set. So what I want to talk to, uh, about today is how that the war between God and man is over because of what Jesus did. Look at this passage in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. This is used a lot during the Christmas season where the angels came and appeared unto the shepherds. And it says in Luke chapter 2 verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. You will often hear during the Christmas season, uh, people refer to this and talk about that this is a time of peace. Peace on earth, peace among men. Matter of fact, some of the translations of this verse will actually say peace among men is what this is talking about. But this is not talking about peace among men. That's not what the angels were glorifying God for. As a matter of fact, over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus even said, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but to send a sword and division, that there will be division between a man and his own children, a man and his wife, etc., Jesus said, I did not come to send peace on earth among men. But when the angels were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men, this was a proclamation of peace from God towards men. Now this is really important because as a whole, the body of Christ has missed this proclamation. They still feel that God's wrath is being revealed against our sin. And yet the Bible says that the law is what works wrath. And now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under the law. The wrath has been removed. And it is not because God just all of a sudden decided, okay, I'm going to change. I'm not going to be judging your sin anymore. No, God is holy. And the Lord said that when you sin, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. And God can't just look the other way. But what He did, He paid for our sins. He paid the debt so that we wouldn't have to. You know, I've heard it explained this way of a man who got a citation for a speeding ticket and so he went before the judge and when he got there, it turned out the judge was his best friend. And he thought, oh, this is great. Now that the judge is my friend, he'll surely let me off. But because he was a just judge, this judge went ahead and made the the, uh, you know, the judgment against him assigned him something like, you know, $150 or whatever for that ticket. The gavel came down and the guy was guilty. And the person thought, well, I thought you were my friend. 
Well, he was your friend, but because he was just, he also had to do what justice demanded. But as soon as he brought the gavel down, then he took off his robes, walked around, and paid the bailiff the fine himself. And see, that's what God did. God, because He's just, He didn't just say, well, I'm going to quit holding people's sins against them. No, sin had to be judged. But sin was judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now all of God's wrath came upon Jesus. Let me share this verse with you out of uh, John chapter 12. And this is Jesus speaking just a few days before His crucifixion. And He told the Lord, His Father, He says, The hour is come. And uh, in verse 27, this is John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, give, uh, save me from this hour, but for this hour came I, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify Thy Son. And then an audible voice came out of heaven and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then the Lord went on to say in verse 30, He says, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This He said, signifying what death He should die. Most people take this verse verse 32, totally out of context, and they make statements that if you just preach Jesus properly and if you lift Him up, if you really glorify the Lord, He'll draw everyone unto Him. That is not what this verse is saying. If you read this in its context, in verse 31, He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And then came verse 32. And then the next verse, verse 33, says, This He said, signifying what death He should die. When he was talking about being lifted up, he wasn't talking about just proclaiming Jesus. He was talking about when he was put on a cross and lifted up on that cross, then would the judgment come. So the verse in front of it was talking about the judgment of this world. The verse after it was talking about his crucifixion and when the judgment would come. And so go back to verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I believe what he's talking about is, I'll draw all of the judgment for men unto me. And in the King James right here, this word men is italicized. And what the translators did, they were honest enough that sometimes they would add words to the translation to make it grammatically correct. But right here, what this is actually saying is, he, he had just talked about in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. This spake he signifying what death he would die. All what? Well, the translators just assumed he must have been talking about all men. But what he was actually saying, I'll draw all judgment unto me. That was the whole context of this, the verse in front and the verse behind. So I bring this out to say, that the way that God declared an end to the war between Him and man, He couldn't just say, well, sin is no longer going to be an issue. I'm just going to overlook it and forget it. I'm changing my standards. No, because He's just, sin had to be judged. The wages of sin had to be paid. But rather than make us pay them, He sent His Son. And Jesus literally took all of God's judgment. That's what he's talking about. If I be lifted up, I will draw all judgment unto me. 
all of God's wrath against your sin and my sin, the sin of everyone, all of God's wrath was placed upon Jesus. You know, I really think that people miss this. People don't understand what really took place on the cross. And yet the Bible tells us that He drew all judgment unto Him. You know, if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 52, let me just read some of this. In Isaiah chapter 52 in verse uh, 14, it says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. The word visage is talking about face, looks. Jesus' face was marred more than any man has ever been marred. That's a huge statement. The NIV, I think it's the NIV that says he didn't even look human. And this is just andeology, but I believe that the reason for that, it went beyond just the physical beatings and stuff, but Jesus took sin and sickness in his body, all of God's wrath, all of the sickness, the disease, the punishment, anything that ever came as a result of sin entered into the physical body and into the soul of Jesus. He suffered pain emotionally. He suffered shame, rejection. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that, that's actually a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And the very next verse in Psalms 22 gives the reason that God forsook him. It says, but thou art holy, O Lord, that inhabits the praises of Israel. The reason God forsook Jesus is because Jesus became unholy for us on the cross. I know that's offensive to some people, but the scripture says very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Jesus bore our sins in his body and being sinful makes you unholy. Jesus became unholy. He became an object of God's wrath, not because of his sins. He was sinless, but he took your sins and my sins and all of the punishment that you and I ever deserved or ever will deserve, he placed it all on Jesus. And now we can truly say glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards you, towards me. Not because we haven't done anything wrong, not because God just changed the standards and says, well, I'm not going to hold people's sins against them. No, it's because Jesus bore God's punishment for your sin and my sin. This is what those angels were singing about in Luke chapter 2. They realized that with the coming of Jesus, Jesus was the lamb that was going to bear the sins of the whole world and they were praising God that the war was finally over, that God was not going to impute men's sins unto them anymore. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. The world reconcile means to make friendlier, to bring into harmony. And how did He do that? It says not imputing their sins unto them. The way that God made us friendly with Him again was He took all of our punishment, put it upon Jesus, and now our sins aren't imputed unto us. They're imputed unto Jesus. And it goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, for he, 
speaking of God, hath made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. God not only took our sins and imputed them unto Jesus and let Jesus suffer in our place, but then God took the righteousness of Jesus and imputed it unto us so that we can benefit just like we had been living holy. Man, that is nearly too good to be true news. You have righteousness imputed unto you. You become righteous, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus did and you put faith in Him. Boy, that's good news. The war is over. You know, down here in Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about that He bore our, our sickness and our diseases, that by His, you know, we, He bore the, our chastisement of our peace was upon Him and all of these things. And then it says, yet it, in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. You know, this is amazing. It actually pleased God the Father to punish His Son. Not because God enjoyed seeing Jesus punished, but it, He loved you and me. He loved the human race so much that God was actually pleased to suffer this punishment for us. That's not to say that He didn't love Jesus, that it didn't bother Him, but He loved us so much more that in comparison it was worth it, is what this is saying. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put Him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God, you don't have to travail. It's not you somehow or another groveling in the dirt and atoning for your sins. Jesus suffered for you, and God looks at his suffering, and that satisfies God if you will just receive it as a gift. In the Old Testament, when they brought a sacrifice to the priest, the priest wouldn't examine the person. He looked at the sacrifice and the priest had to examine the sacrifice to see if the sacrifice was holy and without blemish. We have a sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain for us. And when we come before God, we say, Father, in the name of Jesus. What that means is not based on my goodness, but because I have a sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb. He bore my sin for me. And God examines Jesus and He says, perfect. And therefore, He grants you right standing with Him. He makes you perfect in His sight, not because you yourself are perfect, but because the sacrifice that was made for you was perfect. And because of this, there should be no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is what these angels were singing about and proclaiming. Glory to God, the war is over. There's peace from God towards man. You can't make God love you more and you can't make God love you less. Now there's things you can do that will make you love God less and there's things you can do that will make you love God more, but God loves you and it's all received by just making Jesus your personal Savior. Man, the war is over. That is good news. What I want to talk about today is that grace is the power of God. It's the power of God to everything that you need in your life. 
Here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, there's a lot in this. And as I was saying, I've spent as many as 30 programs explaining these verses. And so there's a lot to this. But real quickly, let me just say that the word salvation here, Today, most people interpret salvation to apply only to your initial born-again experience, getting your sins forgiven. But the Greek word for salvation that is used here in over 300 times in the New Testament is the word sozo, and it literally means healing and deliverance and prosperity and forgiveness of sins. It's an all-inclusive word that just refers to everything that Jesus provided. Not just your initial forgiveness of sins when you got born again. So plug that back into here that the gospel is the power of God unto healing, unto deliverance, unto prosperity, unto joy, unto peace, unto anything that you need. If you are having a problem in any area of your life, financial, emotional, healing, relational, or whatever, it's the gospel that releases the power for that. And some people are thinking, well, I know the gospel. Well, again, the word gospel is a word that is misused today. The word gospel literally means good news. It was a word that existed before the Bible was written, the New Testament was written, but it was an obscure word, a word that people hardly ever use because it not only means good news, it literally is referring to nearly too good to be true news. It's just a superlative. It's an over-the-top thing talking about that this is too good to be true. This is too good to believe. And the word existed, but it was hardly ever used because nothing was nearly too good to be true. The religious system that was under the Old Testament Jewish law was a system of harshness and punishment and regulations and rules. It was very similar to our religious system today. We've changed the rules a little bit. We now don't count how many steps we take on a Sabbath day, but we still have to read our Bible so much. We have to go to church. We have to pay our tithes. We have to be this and do this and not do that. And if we violate these things, God will reject us. Well, that was the way it was in Jesus' day, except times 10. It was on steroids. It was much worse than what we see today. And when Paul came along and says, I'm not ashamed of this good news, this nearly too good to be true news, that that's what leads men to repentance. Over here in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Are you, Do you despise the riches of His grace and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? In that religious system, and even in our religious system today, most people don't use good news to draw people to God. They use bad news and fear of punishment to drive people to God. Now, it may be true that there is a hell that people go to if they reject Jesus, and it may be true that the person you're talking to, if they haven't accepted Jesus, is headed for hell. But to tell them that they're headed to hell and that God's angry at them and God's going to punish them, that is not the gospel. That is not good news. The gospel is specifically talking about that even though there is a hell and that even though we do deserve to go there, we don't have to go there because Jesus paid for our sins. 
It's specifically talking about that God offers us forgiveness, but it's even more than that. It's not just saying that you can be forgiven, but it's, it's amplifying and emphasizing the way you're forgiven. And the way you're forgiven is because of the grace of God. The gospel is talking about that it is unearned, undeserved, unmerited. That's what the word grace means. And grace is something that you cannot earn. Now, you can receive it. Matter of fact, you have to receive it. God's grace has come unto the entire world. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. His grace that brings salvation has come unto every person who's ever breathed on this planet. The grace of God paid for your sins and that grace has come unto you. But does that mean that you're automatically forgiven? No, because in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, it says we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. God's grace has come unto everyone, but only by faith do you receive it. It has to be accepted, received by faith. It's not something you do that makes God respond to you. God has already done before you even existed. Before you ever committed a sin, God had already forgiven him. It's a done deal, but it doesn't benefit you until you receive it by faith. You have access by faith into this grace. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that you are saved by grace, that's God's part, through faith, that's your part. God's grace is the same towards everyone, but not everyone responds the same to God's grace. A positive response to God's grace is what the Bible calls faith. A negative response to God's grace or no response to God's grace is what the Bible calls unbelief. And you can totally void God's grace in your life through your unbelief, your lack of response or your total out and out rejection. But if you will humble yourself and just receive by faith, say, Father, thank you. I believe that Jesus did bear my punishment and put faith in Him. That's what releases God's power in your life. So back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, the grace, the way I receive God's goodness and forgiveness. I'm not ashamed that it comes through grace and not through my own effort. Did you know that actually religion uh, puts people's faith in themselves? It makes them proud of themselves. This is why they get that old Pharisee attitude that God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, that I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. I thank you that I'm not like this old publican over here. See, that's what the Pharisees said. Religion will make you proud because you think that it's God responding to you. God, I've lived holy. I've done this, this, and this. I haven't done this, this, and this. And now you have to move in my life. You may not say it in those exact words, but you know what? That, that is where most people are not experiencing the power is because they are trusting in their own goodness. They may not say it in those words, but that's what it is. I've had people come to me by the thousands. I've had prayer lines and I've prayed for tens of thousands of people. 
And I've had so many people come up and say, why hasn't God healed me? I fasted. I pay my tithes. I go to church. I do this. I do this. I do this. Why hasn't God healed me? Did you know if you say anything like that, you have revealed why God hasn't healed you. Because you didn't point to Jesus and what Jesus did for you. You pointed to you and what you have been doing for Jesus. Your faith was in yourself. You are proud of your own accomplishments. You think you are such a good person that God owes you something. You can't earn forgiveness. Your good will never outweigh your bad. See, a lot of people have this concept of these scales and if your good outweighs your bad, then God will accept you. No, if you've sinned in the slightest thing, if you aren't perfect, your reward is hell unless you put faith in a Savior. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that it's not based on your performance. And once you understand this, then Satan can't condemn you. He can't make you feel unworthy. The truth is, in our physical self, we are unworthy, but the, the greater truth is that God isn't giving us what we deserve. He's giving us what we believe. If we can receive the grace of God, this gospel, the good news, the nearly too good to be true news, that God loves us despite all of our things. He just loves us because we have put faith in Jesus and Jesus paid the debt that we owed. Jesus gave us all of His righteousness. If you can believe this nearly too good to be true news, you could be made right with God this instant, just as if you'd never sinned. That's my little layman's definition of what the word justified means, just as if I'd never sinned. I was taught that our lives are similar to a two-before and you drive nails in it. The two-befores are, are us. The nails are the sins. And when Jesus comes along, He forgives you. He pulls all of the nails, but you've still got the scar, the imprint of the nail. And, and I was told that this is the way it is, that we limp through life because of all of the things that we've done wrong. But the Bible teaches, the good news, the gospel is that no, God takes this two before with all of the nails in it and just throws it away and gives you a brand new one that is completely pure and then seals it so that never again will anything ever penetrate that seal and cause that injury to you again. In your spirit, you get a brand new spirit that is completely brand new. It is righteous with God. And in that spirit is everything that you will ever need. There is no sickness you'll ever encounter that the power of God that's already in your born-again spirit isn't already over, able to overcome it, more than sufficient for it. There is no need, no emotional need, no rejection, no poverty, no anything that could ever come against you that the power on the inside of you is greater than the thing that you're experiencing. It's already done. See, again, much of the Christian realm is trying to get God to do something. The truth is we aren't headed towards victory. We are coming from a victory. Victory is behind us. At the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid for everything. It's a done deal. And when you got born again, He placed on the inside of you Himself. And He's got everything that He is. Everything that He has is in you. And it's a matter of drawing it out instead of trying to get God to do it. You aren't fighting towards a victory. You are already coming from a victory. You're already more than conquerors. It's already done. It's an accomplished work. See, this is the gospel. That by grace, it's done. I don't deserve it. The moment you start 
thinking that you have to be worthy to have God move in your life. You have just inserted yourself into like this chain. And a chain isn't any stronger than its weakest link. And I can guarantee you the moment you make God's promises and power conditional upon your performance, you are going to be that weak link and you will break the chain and you will not see the power of God manifest. But when you can understand the gospel, that it's not based on your performance, grace is the power of the gospel. It's what releases this power in your life. And once you understand that, then Satan can't condemn you. You know, Satan used to come to me and say, well, you aren't living holy enough. And I would make the mistake of thinking, all right, I'm going to promise to be holier. I'll fast more. I'll pray more. I'll study more. I'll be better. The moment I took that approach, I was destined to fail because it doesn't matter how much I try, I'll never do it perfectly. I could always do better than I've done. And Satan is a master at accusing the brethren, accusing us and pointing out our sins. And you'll always be condemned and it'll be like, you know, uh, chasing a carrot that's hung on a stick that's attached to your back. You reach for it, but every time you move, it moves. You'll never reach it. You'll never obtain unto it. You'll never be perfect. But the good news, the gospel, the nearly too good to be true news is that you don't have to earn it through your performance. God has already provided everything you will ever need or want through Jesus and all you've got to do is put faith in His grace. You're saved by grace through faith. You just put faith in the fact that God by grace, you've given these things to me as a gift. I don't have to earn it. And then when you are, have done something wrong and the devil comes and condemns you, instead of trying to justify yourself and say, I'll try harder, I'll do more, Instead, you just say, thank God for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the gospel, the nearly too good to be true news that I don't have to earn it. I'm going to get this because of what Jesus did, not because of what I do. And you rest in the Lord and you don't live a life of condemnation. Now, this also doesn't free you up to go live in sin because even though God isn't holding sin against you, He's not imputing it unto you, Satan will take advantage of you because of sin. So as much as you can, quit sinning. Quit giving Satan, Satan a free shot at you. But you'll never do everything perfectly. And when you do mess up, just rest in the gospel, the nearly too good to be true news that praise God, I'm not getting what I deserve. I get what Jesus deserves because I believe in Him. I've put faith in the grace of God. The grace of God is what releases this power into you. And I'm telling you, it's a shame, but the average Christian today does not understand this. The average Christian today is living a life of performance and condemnation and sense of unworthiness because they aren't matching up. I've got good news for you. Nearly too good to be true news that it's not based on your performance. It's based on the grace of God. I've got a lot of teaching on the grace of God that's what just literally changed my life and set me free. But there is a balance to this. And what I want to talk about today is the balance between grace and faith. Did you know most people see grace and faith as being opposites? You have people that are, you know, they say they're in the grace camp or the faith camp. There's people that say, man, I'm a faith man or I'm a grace man. But I have learned this, that any true truth 
from the Word of God has a apparent opposite truth that balances it. You know, out where I live, I have a dirt road and we have what we call bar ditches on both sides of the road. And especially in the winter, one ditch isn't better than the other ditch. If you want to reach your destination, you got to go down the middle in between the ditches. All error is, is one truth from God taken at the expense or to the exclusion of another truth from God. If you are really going to get the right way to divide the Word of God, you've got to put it in its proper balance. You know, Martin Luther is a man who God used to spark the Protestant Reformation. And you and I and what God is doing in the earth today, uh, a large part of that came because Martin Luther got a revelation that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And that revelation sparked the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther was just transformed by this. But there are scriptures in the book of James, chapter 2, that says, Faith without works is dead. You see how that Abraham was justified by works and not by faith only. And Martin Luther saw that as an opposite truth, as an opposite, uh, a contradictory truth to what he was saying about grace. And because of it, Martin Luther actually lobbied to get the book of James taken out of the Bible because he thought it wasn't Scripture. But you know, it actually balances things. If all people do is talk about it's just grace, it's not based on your works, well, then that might lead some people to say, well, then I'm just going to live in sin and do whatever. But James comes along and says, faith without works, without corresponding actions is dead. It doesn't contradict, it actually complements. Here's the way that John Calvin said it. John Calvin said, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. And that's a good way of putting it. In other words, faith is all it takes to be righteous in the sight of God, just believing on the Lord Jesus. But if it's true faith, faith without actions is dead. It's not true faith if there aren't actions. You know, if I was to say to you that the place you're in is on fire, and if you really believed me, it will affect your actions. And for a person to say that you're saved by grace only, and they don't even emphasize that faith is a part of it, well, then that's wrong. And yet we've had some groups, see, that just emphasize grace to such a degree that it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. That's not true. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, that we have access into this grace by faith. God's grace has come unto every person, but not every person has received the benefit because they don't mix it with faith. To prove that, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. If grace alone saved you, then all men would be saved because the grace of God has come unto all men. And by definition, grace means unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor. And so if it's unmerited, unearned, undeserved, well, and it's come to every person, well, then that means that every person would have received. But see, you aren't saved by grace alone. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, you're saved by grace through faith. 
Grace is God's part. Faith is your part. Grace is something that is independent of you. If it has anything to do with your actions, if you have to be worthy of it or anything like that, well, then it's no longer grace. Grace is independent of you. It's something that God did because God is love, not because you are lovely. So God, by grace, provided salvation, provided healing, provided deliverance, provided prosperity, everything that you ever need. God, by grace, has provided it. But faith is your part. And let me define faith. This is really important. It took me 20 years to figure this out. I guess I'm a slow learner. But boy, when I understood this, it has revolutionized my life. Faith is not something you do to get God to move. That's what the Bible calls works. And that will actually stop God's grace from operating in your life. Grace is not something you do and gain a response from God, but faith is your positive response to what God has already done by grace. That's an important definition right there. If you are trying to get God to do something by your faith, that's not true faith. That's works. That's legalism. And that's the very thing that stops God. You will often hear people say things like, faith moves God. Faith does not move God. God moved of His own free will and volition by grace and provided your need before you ever had the need. That's grace. God moved by His love and by His grace. And faith doesn't move God, but faith moves you. Faith gets you into a position to receive from God. Here's another definition that the Lord gave me that really has helped me, that faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. If God hasn't already provided it, then your faith can't make it happen. That's big right there. There are some people that have taken scriptures like Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And they've taken this and they said, all right, I'm going to believe and I'm going to make God move. Many people see faith like a pry bar that you stick under God and you use it to move Him and to make Him do something. Faith doesn't make God do anything. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided. You know, if you take Mark eleven twenty four, it says, Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Some people, I actually knew a woman one time who ran a little tiny Bible school with just a few women in it. And she confessed that Kenneth Copeland was going to be her husband. And of course, Kenneth Copeland was married to Gloria Copeland. And the way she dealt with this, she says, I can have what I say. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So she, with her words, cursed Gloria, commanded her to die and to get out of the way. And then she and her Bible college student held a wedding ceremony where in the spirit, quote unquote, she married Kenneth Copeland. And then she was just waiting on it to come to pass. Now, most of you listening to me say, that's not right. You can't do things like that. Well, why not? Doesn't the Bible say, Mark eleven twenty four, whatsoever things you desire? Isn't that a whatsoever? Why can't you do that? Well, the average Christian would just respond, well, I don't feel good about it. I just don't think that's right. Why not? Here's the answer. Here's the technical 
explanation of why it won't work. Because God, by grace, did not provide adultery and murder for you in His atonement. See, faith doesn't make God do anything. You can't just take Mark eleven twenty four and say, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that I'm going to rob a bank and get away with a million dollars because I confess it with my mouth and believe it with my heart. It won't work because God didn't provide thievery for you in His atonement. Faith doesn't move God. Faith doesn't make God do anything. All faith does is reach out and appropriate what God has already provided. You know, I've already got this cup here with water in it. I can reach out and take this because it's already here. It's already been provided. But you know what? I can't take, I can't reach out and take that book or that something because it's not there. I can't, I can't grab something that God hasn't already provided, that isn't already there. I can't by faith reach out and make God help me rob a bank, make God help me commit adultery, do something. Faith doesn't make God do anything. But if God has already put it here for you in His atonement, if it's a part of what He's purchased, then faith is just reaching out and appropriating what God has already provided. Boy, that just changed my life. And it gives a balance. See, if all you're doing is talking about, well, it's just God's grace. doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't care. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to seek God. I don't live holy. I, it doesn't matter what I do. It's all up to God. Que Sarah Sarah. Whatever will be, will be. See, if you take grace and eliminate faith, our positive response to His grace, well, then grace becomes error. And it leads people into this sovereignty of God, a, a wrong, extreme sovereignty of God to where it's just, you know, whatever will happen, it must have been God's will. That's not true. It is not true that everything that happens is somehow or another under God's will. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can't get it any clearer than that. It is not God's will for any person to perish, and yet they do. Why? Because they don't put faith in the salvation that God has already provided. In other words, they don't cooperate. They don't appropriate what God has provided by grace. And so God doesn't just control everything. It's His will for every person to be saved, but He's not going to force you to get saved. You have to choose to respond. See, if you take faith away from grace, then grace becomes error. You have to live in a balance between grace and faith. But on the other hand, if you take grace away from faith and you just get to emphasizing that you need to study the Word, you need to pray, you need to go to church, you need to do this, this, and this. And if all you do is emphasize your part and you don't recognize that your part is not making God do something. It's not earning you God's favor. It's just a way of you receiving from God. Well, then that faith becomes error. And that faith becomes legalistic. That faith becomes a law. It becomes something that wears you out. I have met many, many Christians who tried to do all of the seven steps and the ten this and twenty that and they have just worn themselves out trying to earn God's favor. That is a person who has emphasized faith without it in being in balance to grace. You've got to have a balance between grace, 
God's part, faith, your part. There has to be this constant balance, like a dance between two people. You've got to mirror the other person. God is moving and supplying all of these things, but you've got to learn how to dance with Him. You've got to learn how to have this balance of grace and faith. You know, if you take uh, sodium and eat it in sufficient quantities, it'll kill you. If you take chloride and eat it in sufficient quantities, it'll kill you. Both sodium and chloride are both poisons. But you know what? You mix them together and you get sodium chloride and it becomes salt and you'll die without it. Well, that's a great example. Grace will kill you if all you do is say, well, it's just up to God. I have nothing to do. I, I can do nothing. I have nothing. That'll kill you. But on the other hand, saying it's all up to me and I've got to do this and this and this and I've got to make God move and I'm going to confess and make God do this, that'll kill you. But if you start confessing and speaking forth your faith of what God has already done by grace, well, then that's living in the balance of grace and faith and that balance between the two will release the power of God in your life. And let me say this, that you never just get this balance perfect. Well, let me say it this way. I never get it perfect. God has shown this to me many, many years ago, and I'm walking in a balance between grace and faith. But it's like walking on a tightrope or a wire. There will be times that you get to saying, oh God, I've been so struggling. I've been trying so hard and I've done all of this. I'm worn out and you'll just call out to God and He'll remind you about His grace that you don't have to earn it. He's already provided it. And boy, you'll get so set free that you'll go to this extreme over here and you'll just get to saying, it's not so much about me. And so you, you quit emphasizing your part and you start emphasizing what God has done. And if you aren't careful, you'll get to an extreme over there to where you aren't doing the necessary things. You aren't seeking the Lord. You aren't studying the Word. You aren't praying. You aren't doing any of these things. And then you'll say, whoops, I need to get back to where I'm renewing my mind. And you will get over here and... And so you, you tend to go like this. You just don't go perfectly in the things of God. It is a constant balancing act between grace and faith. But I tell you, this has revolutionized my life to understand that God, His part is grace. And He's done everything I will ever need before I ever need it. He's already provided it. I don't have to go to Him and tell Him how bad my problem is and get him to uh, somehow or another feel compassion for me and then do something. He's already done all of that before I ever existed, before I ever had the problem. And all I've got to do is respond positively to it. God by grace has provided everything, but you by faith need to respond. You have to reach out, take it, peel it, eat it. That's your part. But God has already provided everything in advance for you by grace. There's a balance between grace and faith. Today what I want to talk about is the believer's authority. And I tell you, this is really powerful. Uh, this is one of the answers to so many questions that people have. I'll have people come and say, why didn't this happen? And in the majority of the cases, I don't know that I can say every case, but in the majority of cases, the reason people are not seen the power of God manifest is because they don't know the authority that was given to us as believers and they're asking God to do what He told us to do. 
Now that's a big statement right there. And many people may not relate to that, but I really believe that that to be a true statement. And many times we're asking God, oh God, please heal this person. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, you heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. And yet the average Christian isn't taking the authority that God has given us. He said, whoever we lay hands on and, and pray for them, a prayer, a prayer of faith that they shall recover. And yet the average Christian isn't taking that authoritative position and commanding things to happen. Instead, they're just begging God as if they have nothing and as if, and as if they can do nothing. One of the reasons we don't see the power of God manifest is because we don't know the authority that God has given us and we don't operate from that position. Let me use this scripture here to illustrate this. This is after Jesus had cursed the fig tree and said, no man would eat fruit of you hereafter forever. And nothing visible happened at that moment, but the next day the disciples saw this fig tree and it was withered up from the roots. And they were just amazed. They were overwhelmed at the power that Jesus was able to operate in. He didn't touch this fig tree. He didn't throw salt on it. He didn't kill the roots. He didn't dig it up. He just spoke words. And the next day, this fig tree was totally dried up from the roots. And the disciples were amazed. And here's Jesus' response to them in Mark chapter 11, verse 22. He says, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Boy, this is a powerful passage. The Lord is basically explaining how he was able to see this powerful demonstration of God's ability and he's saying that it's by your words that you speak. But here's something that people skip over and they often don't see this. But he said, whosoever will say unto this mountain. Now again, I don't believe that this is limited to a mountain or something like that. I believe that Jesus was just basically saying, this will work on anything. It's like him saying, look, I say unto you that whosoever will say unto... And he just looked around to see what it was. And he said, unto this mountain... Be thou removed. It's not limited to mountains. It's just whatever is your problem in your life, whatever it is that is standing in your way, that's your mountain. It's your problem. And so he says, whoever will say, speak unto this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and doubt not in his heart, but believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. A subtle truth that many people miss here is that he specifically said you have to speak to the mountain, speak to your problem. So involved in this, you have to think about this just a moment to get it, but involved in this is the believer's authority. In other words, he never said, ask me to do something. See, this is what the average Christian does. They just think I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing, and so, God, we come before you so humbly. Would you please move? Would you please do this? I know because I have people come to me and they go out of their way to tell me how pitiful their situation is. The doctors can't do anything. I'm just so weak. I'm so tired. I'm so, I'm so desperate. And they, they do that, I believe, to solicit sympathy from me, pity, to motivate me, to help meet their need. 
But in doing so, they are completely denying everything that the Word of God says about that we are the ones that have the resurrection power on the inside of us, that God has already supplied all of our need and that we've already got it. We just need to release it and manifest. So a lot of the religious posturing that we've been taught to come before God and say, Oh God, I'm nothing without you. You know, that's a quotation from... John chapter 15, where Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. And I agree with that. But what people are missing is, I'm never without God. If somehow or another you could separate my born-again part and what Jesus has done in my life from the rest of me, well, then I agree. Without God, I'm nothing. But I'm never without Him. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. So this attitude of, oh God, we are nothing and we have nothing and we can do nothing is an ungodly attitude that reveals you don't understand the authority and the power that God has given unto you. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say God will flee, I mean that the devil will flee from God. God and the devil have already meant Jesus destroyed and defeated Satan, hands down. Satan is a defeated foe, but he will come against those who don't know for sure their position and authority in Christ, and he will fight you. And it's when you take this authority and you resist the devil in the name of Jesus, and he flees from you. Most Christians are asking God, Oh God, please get the devil off my back. God gave you that power and authority. You get the devil off of your back. Now, it's not your power. It's God's power, but it's in you. You know, an example of this is Peter and John when they went into the temple, Acts chapter 3, at the hour of prayer, and they saw a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked, and he was begging. And Peter looked at him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have Give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they reached down and grabbed the man by the hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he went walking and leaping and praising God. Did you know he didn't even pray? Peter didn't pray and ask God to heal him. He said, such as I have, give I unto thee. And then he released the power of God. This goes along with Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, where the Lord commanded us to go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. He didn't tell us to pray for the sick. He told us to heal the sick. There's a difference between those two. Just pray in a prayer like, Oh God, we are nothing. We can't do anything, but we know you can do all things. Would you stretch forth your hand? Would you touch the... See, that's a chicken prayer. The Lord didn't tell us to approach Him that way. He told us to go heal the sick. It was a command to heal the sick. It was a command to take our authority. The same thing here. See, you speak to the mountain. You command those things to leave and Satan will flee from you. You know, I had an instance in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the people I was staying with had a friend who had some kind of a problem. I forget all of the details. If I get some of this wrong, forgive me. But the principles I'm sharing are true. But I think it was seven years or something that they had had this pain that was just all throughout their body. And the doctor said that on a scale of one to 10, their pain was a constant 11. And so it was a really bad situation. The doctors had told this woman two years before the time I met her that they expected her to die. 
So she was already on borrowed time. She had this pain all through her body. And the way she adjusted, she had magnets strapped to her body and then she had a blanket with magnets in it. And somehow or another, the magnetic field between these magnets somehow or another reduced the pain enough that she could, you know, function. But she still wasn't able to work or do normal things and she was, she was just in a bad state. So this woman invited her over to the house. When she came in, she... I talked to her. She had a lot of wrong thinking, thinking that God caused this. God was allowing it. He was getting glory from it. And I had to counter all those things. And anyway, I prayed with her and uh, she had this constant pain. She was sitting on a couch. I sat on a coffee table right in front of her. I held her hands, prayed and rebuked this pain. And I commanded the pain to leave. I didn't ask it to leave. I commanded it to leave. And when I got through, I said, so do you have any pain? She started moving around and she says, no, she was pain free for the first time in like seven, nine years, whatever it was. And she says, but I still have this stinging, this burning at my waist in the, in the back at her waist. And she says, why do I have that? I said, you didn't tell me you had stinging. You told me you had pain. I said, watch this. And then I grabbed her hands and I rebuked the stinging and the stinging left. And this woman was totally free for the first time in many years. She was just instantly free. And then I began to teach her these exact things from Mark eleven twenty three. And I said, Satan will try and get you back into that condition. But I said, if you have another pain or another burning or stinging, it doesn't mean that you weren't healed. It's just like Satan knocking on the door seeing if you'll let him back in. He knows that I believe. So when I took my authority and commanded, he fled from me. And I said, but he's not sure you believe. So he may knock on the door. You may have a pain come back, but that doesn't mean you weren't healed or it doesn't mean you lost your healing. All it is is him knocking on the door trying to get back in. And so I said, here's how you respond to him. And I taught her to speak to the problem. And I spent about 20 minutes sharing with this lady how to do these things. And so anyway, we rejoiced and praised God. She got ready to leave. And as she put her hand on the doorknob, to leave that room. She looked at me and she says, the stinging is back. And I said, well, I've just taught you what to do in case, you know, any of these pains or symptoms comes back. And so I said, instead of me praying, I want you to pray and I'm going to agree with you. And you've got to remember that 45 minutes before this, this woman was a Presbyterian who thought that God put this on her, who had no concept of her authority or anything. And so she prayed a pretty good prayer for a person that just 45 minutes before had none of the knowledge of these things. And this is nearly word for word what she said. When we joined hands and prayed, she says, Father, I thank you that this is not your will, that by the stripes of Jesus, I was healed. It's already done. And if I was healed, I am healed. I claim my healing in the name of Jesus. And many of you listening will say, that's a great prayer. Well, it was good things that she said. They were all good things. But you know what? You won't get healed praying that way. That's exactly the way many of you pray. And you will not get healed praying like that. And so after this woman prayed, I said, so do you still have the stinging? And she says, yes. Why I still have stinging? I said, because you did not do what the Word taught you to do right here. And she said, tell me again. And I said, it says you have to say to the mountain. You don't talk to God and just confess that you believe by His stripes you're healed and 
you praise Him, you're going to be healed, things like that. You take your authority, believe that God has already done it and put this power on the inside of you and then you take your authority and you speak directly to the problem. And this woman says, you mean I'm supposed to stay, say stinging in the name of Jesus? And I said, yes. And she said, I'll do it. So we joined hands again and this time she went stinging in the name of Jesus. And that's as far as she got. And she says, it's gone. And it worked. And that was in, I believe, 2001. And so it's been over 14 years. And you know what? That woman is still walking free of that. She said that she's had it come back a time or two and she spoke to it and it was over. See, this is what this is talking about. You have to recognize that God has done His part. It's not up to God whether you get healed, whether you get prospered, whether you get happy, delivered, God has already done this. You've already got love, joy, and peace on the inside of you. You've already got the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You've already been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything you ever will need is already in you through God's grace and His favor. But you have to release it by faith and you have to acknowledge the authority and power that God has given you and you resist the devil and he will flee from you. You speak to your problem. Even if it's an inanimate problem, if it's pain, if it's stinging, if it's your eyes, talk to your eyes. I talk to my eyes. I talk to, if I have a pain in my body, I say, pain, get out of my body. I tell things to leave. If I have an infection, I speak to it. I have spoken to cancer in other people's body and I say, cancer in the name of Jesus, I command you to die. Every cancer cell in this body, die. Get out of this body in Jesus' name. Deuteronomy, or excuse me, not Deuteronomy, but Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and they that love it will eat the fruit thereof. You can use your words to release death or life. Now, this isn't just talking about speaking negative things. That's true. But you can speak death to things like cancer. You could speak death to some kind of a parasite. You could speak death to a tumor. You could speak death to some type of infection in your body and then turn around and release life. I release the healing power of God, the power that's in my spirit. I speak it with my mouth and believe in my heart that I've got what I say. And see, this is how the power of God, this authority of God is voice activated. It says in Psalms chapter 90 that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. See, that's talking about supernatural protection, provision. But the second verse says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. All of the promises in there about no plague coming nigh your dwelling and all of these things, they are conditional upon you speaking it. The power of God, the authority of God is voice activated. So you have to speak. And according to this, you have to speak to the problem and not to God about your problem. I know that somebody's thinking, so you just are sitting here and it's all you and it's your own power and you aren't going to pray and you aren't going to admit your dependency upon God and stuff like this. Boy, you have missed everything I've said if that's what you're thinking. It is not my power. I can't heal a gnat. 
I can't overcome the devil in myself, but I have God's power in me and I have to believe I have God's power and the authority to use that power. And when I say in the name of Jesus, I am not approaching these problems in my own strength and power. I'm doing it through the authority that God has given me. You know, Paul, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 3, that verse I was quoting earlier, he said, such as I have, give I unto thee. And then he said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. When he says in the name of Jesus, he was drawing on Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. But he said he had it. Both of those things are true. Somebody's probably listening and thinking, boy, you arrogant thing, thinking you could do all of this. I can't do anything on my own. But in the name of Jesus, through His authority and power that's already put on the inside of me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you just want to take the through Christ off and talk about you can do anything, well, that's arrogance and that pride leads to destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But if you put your faith in Christ, I can do all things through Christ, that's the authority of the believer. And this is the precise reason that so many people are not seeing God's power manifest is because they don't understand that God has already done His part. He's put that power on the inside of you and gave you the authority, the responsibility to use it. And the reason we aren't seeing greater manifestations of God's power is because we're ignorant of that authority and we aren't using it. Today, I just want to summarize some things that the Lord has shown me about prayer. I have an entire teaching entitled, A Better Way to Pray. And the reason I called it A Better Way to Pray is because everything that I teach against, every wrong attitude and mistake that people make praying, I've done. I've done all of the things that I'm going to be teaching against, and God loved me and I love God, but I found a better way to pray. I specifically didn't name this teaching, You're of the Devil if you don't pray this way. I named it a better way to pray because I have learned some things and I get better results now than I used to get. This is contrary to a lot of things that we've heard on the subject of prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was teaching His disciples and He said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, He says, And when thou prayest... Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. You know, Jesus, when He started teaching on prayer, the first thing He did was counter wrong attitudes about prayer. And here's one of the very first things that Jesus said. Here in verse 5, When thou prayest, be not as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray. Hypocrites love to pray. There are many people that pray not to communicate with God, but so that they can feel good about themselves. Look what I've done. I've spent an hour in prayer. I've done this. And they use it to brag and to show that somehow or another they're superior to other people. This goes contrary to everything Jesus was teaching right here. Prayer is nothing but talking to God, communicating with God. And if you talk to me like this, but then you talk to God in Elizabethan English and your voice has to change and you project yourself, you're a hypocrite. I'm not saying that to hurt you. I'm saying it to help you. You're religious. You are going through emotion. You know what some of the best prayers are? It's like, help! Amen. That's an awesome prayer. 
Man, when you just cry out to God. But this, you know, let me just read some of these other things he said. He said, hypocrites love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of man. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Do you know, again, this is another mistake that people make with prayer. They think the more I pray, the longer I pray, the more I'm heard. This says that they think, these hypocrites think they shall be heard for their much speaking. God is not into long prayers. God is not necessarily against long prayers. If you've got a lot to say, then say it. But you know what? For you to just think that somehow or another, the longer you pray, the better off you're going to be is wrong. When I first got turned on to the Lord, man, I loved God with all of my heart. I was wanting, I had people talk about praying an hour a day. And I thought if an hour a day would help you, two or three hours a day would even be better. And I got to where I was spending hours a day praying. But it was hard. It was hard. It was really hard on me to force myself to do that. It wasn't genuine. God would rather have me sit there and study the Word and be listening to Him and having Him speaking to me and me talking back to Him. That's prayer. You don't have to have your eyes closed. You don't have to be on your knees. Prayer is just communion with God. There may be special times of prayer. You know, just like when you're in a relationship with a person. Did you know, I believe that that's the way the relationship with God is. Yes, there's these special times where you just really connect. And boy, you may be in the glory of God and you may be prostrate on your face before God on the floor. And that's great when it happens, but you aren't going to have that all of the time. It's not going to be that often. The vast majority of the time, you're just talking to God. For instance, Adam and Eve. Think about this. God created us for fellowship. It says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, these angels and, and living creatures are praising God in heaven. And here's what they're saying. For thou art worthy, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That means that the original purpose for creation and still the purpose for creation is for God's pleasure. So Adam and Eve were created for God's pleasure. And God met with them in the cool of the evening and they talked to Him. You know what that is? Prayer. And what do you think that they prayed like? Before they had sin to confess. Before they had clothes to believe for. Before they had to worry about their food. Before they had to pray to get people saved and rebuke the devil and bind this and do that. What did they do? When they were in that sinless state and they met with God in the cool of the evening. You know, the scripture doesn't say, I I believe that they just were talking to God. Probably the majority of their thing was just telling God, God, it's beautiful. This garden, the world that you created is awesome. Thank you for my mate. They are awesome. Thank you. I I ate this fruit today, the first time I've ever tasted that, and it was wonderful. Thank you for for providing for me and doing this. I saw this animal today. It was just amazing. It was beautiful. And they just were praising him and talking about what he had done and just visiting about how their day was. You know what that is? That's prayer. 
And even though we now live on this side of the fall and we do have demonic things and we do have needs, I believe that the heart of prayer ought to be the same thing. Prayer ought to be primarily for fellowship with God. And yes, if you go down here to the Lord's Prayer, you know, I'm talking as fast as I can and I just am not going to be able to cover all of this stuff right here. But in the Lord's Prayer, it does say, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. There is a place to confess your faults. There is a place to ask for God to meet your needs. But it's not the place that it occupies in most people's lives. It should be a minor part of our prayer life. This is just andeology. You can take this as my own opinion if you want to. But I believe that in my life, 90% or more, probably 95% of my prayer life is just loving God and thanking God and praising God for what He's already done. I have an hour's drive in and I spent that time just talking to the Lord. I wasn't begging. I wasn't rebuking. I wasn't binding. You know, when I first got started in prayer and I became aware that there was a spiritual realm and that Satan was a factor and that many of the things, sicknesses, diseases, uh, uh, emotions and different things are actually demonic in nature. I could teach on that from the Word. Jesus cast demons out to affect physical healings. When I understood this, and you know, as it says over in Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When I became aware of that, I started binding the devil and rebuking this. And, and I actually, during this two and three hour period of time that I would pray every day, I actually one time realized that I was actually addressing the devil more more, more, I spent more time addressing the devil than I did talking to God. And yet I was calling that prayer. And I thought, something's wrong with this. I shouldn't be talking to the devil in prayer more than I'm talking to God. And yet I had done that. I'd gotten to where I was binding and loosening and rebuking and doing all of these things. And I actually believe now that I, I don't spend very much time rebuking the devil. I do. There are times that I have to take authority and bind the devil and cast down thoughts. And when I'm praying for other people, I'll rebuke the devil and resist him. But I'm saying that the vast majority of my prayer life with God is just loving Him, thanking Him, blessing Him, ministering unto Him. You know, this is another subject that, man, I wished I had weeks to be able to share this truth with you. But the Lord, it says in Acts chapter 13 verse 2 that Paul and, and Silas and others or Paul and Barnabas that they fasted and prayed and ministered to the Lord. What does it mean to minister to the Lord? We sometimes think of ministering as somebody preaching and saying you need to do this, repent, change, do this. Do you think that they were somehow or another telling the Lord you need to do this, do this, do this, repent? No. What they were doing when they ministered to the Lord they were just loving Him, thanking Him. They were blessing Him. You know, the Bible says, Psalms 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. There's many scriptures that talk about blessing the Lord. Blessing the Lord isn't just mouthing the words, but when you tell the Lord how much you love Him, you know what that does? It blesses the Lord. God has a need. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And anybody who loves has a need for that love to be returned. 
Now, I believe that God is so together. He's got it so much together that if we don't return the love to Him the way we should, He's not going to fall off His throne. He can handle it. But He does desire for us to love Him back. He loves us and He, lo he inhabits the praises of His people. Psalms chapter 22, verse 3. Zephaniah 3, 17. He rejoices over us. He twirls and dances violently when we begin to love Him. It just blesses God. We've got this book entitled The Effects of Praise. I've also got CDs and DVDs on this. There are very, very, very few things that we can do in the Christian life that have as much benefit to us as praise and thanksgiving. Just focusing on God. It ministers to God for one thing. That in itself is enough. God has done so much for us. It says He inhabits the praises of His people. I think that's Psalms 22, 3. And if it blesses God and if, and if God is blessed by it, that's reason enough to give thanksgiving and praise to God. But it not only blesses God, it blesses us. It changes our attention. It'll change your whole focus. And I'm telling you, much of our problem is because as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. If you focus on the problem, it's just going to increase and magnify that problem and allow it to have more and more dominance and control over you. But when you start giving thanks to God, I tell you, it changes you. It is awesome. And then praise also affects the devil. Praise is a weapon. You get that from Matthew chapter 21 compared with Psalms chapter 8 where Jesus quoted from Psalms chapter 8 and He interchanged a couple of words and basically said that praise is strength to still the enemy and the avenger. Satan just gets stopped in his tracks when you go to praising God and being thankful unto Him. He can't stand it. That right there is a good enough reason to do it. But it blesses God. It blesses you and it is a weapon against the devil. Praise is a powerful force. Thanksgiving is a part of praise. You can't truly praise God without being thankful. And so just like President Lincoln did in 1863, just as, as the Apostle Paul did in Philippians chapter 4, and just as so many different things in Scripture says, we need to give a life of thanksgiving and praise to God. Man, praise God that things are as good as they are. They could be better. They should be better. They're going to be better as we motivate and do what we need to do. But praise God for His faithfulness and goodness. And praise God that if worse comes to worse and the bottom falls out, I'm still standing on the Word of God and I'm going to be standing when all the dust settles. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.